Why should governments embrace new payment technologies? This is the question we set out to answer on this very special bonus Fintech Insider and Blockchain Insider crossover episode. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, Global Strategy Director of Crypto here at 11FS, and I'm joined by a fantastic panel to discuss if blockchain is the future or a fad, if new technologies can really change everything, why lawmakers should care about any of this, and so much more. To discuss this, I'm joined by my co-host, David Breer, Group CEO here at 11FS, as well as the Lord Holmes of Richmond, MBE, and Jenna Ayo, Director of Financial Policy at the Chamber of Progress. I hope you enjoy LFG. Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is rarely easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11fs.com slash homebuying. That's 11fs.com slash homebuying. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. All right, let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of ridiculously amazing guests in the, uh, I'm, you know, I use that uh, every week, but this week, insane guests, I have to say, that we're, we've got, uh, who can shed some light on this super interesting topic for us. First off, I'm joined by our very own Blockchain Insider podcast host, Maurizio Magaldi, who is the Global Director of Crypto at 11FS. How's it going, Maurizio? Pretty good. I, I'll, I'll, I'll be the insane part of that commentary for <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I was saying this just before we started, uh, when we were talking outside, it's like, how has it taken like a year for me and you to be on a podcast <laughs> together? Like, what, what, I think they've kept us apart somehow, haven't they? But uh, for, for all of, obviously everybody on Blockchain Insider know you and, uh, and know what you do at 11FS, but for anybody else, for our FinTech Insider audience, give a bit of a background. Yeah, for sure. So yes, I'm the host of Blockchain Insider, but I'm also the strategy director for crypto. And in this job, I help FinTechs, uh, banks, and even regulators to understand the potential of blockchain technologies and how they can adopt that in their day-to-day and what impacts uh, they can bring to the industry. So really fortunate to be talking about this exactly here today. Very cool. Very relevant to the topic. Uh, We are also joined, I mean, Maurizio, if only we had some people who knew lots and lots and lots about this topic to talk about, right? And we are joined today by, and I I feel like I'm going to get this this wrong, but the Lord Holmes of Richmond MBE. I was particularly taken by the at the beginning of it, uh, Chris. I was... Am I okay to call you Chris, or is it Lord Holmes? You can call me Chris or the Chris, certainly. <laughs> I do. I did joke beforehand. The the at the beginning of it makes it sound like you know when you're not early on a social media platform and somebody takes your name and then you have to put the the at the beginning of it. But um, but anyway, it's pl- absolute pleasure to have you on. I, I said before the show, I'm. Uh, 
in absolute awe of all the things that you've achieved. Uh, if you ever come again, please bring all of the gold medals because I just would... I'm not sure you'd be able to carry them all. There were so many, wasn't there? I mean, I've been very fortunate, but uh, the, the swimming was great, but it, it feels like it a lifetime ago. Yeah, mine and your knees too. But uh, uh, So on that note, I mean, what should listeners know about you and, and actually your interest in payments as well? Well, very much, and again, a pleasure to be here. I'm very interested in talent and technology, blending them both to get the best out of both. And in Parliament, I set up groups on fintech and AI, and also wrote a report in 2017 on distributed ledger technology for public good. So really interested in how we use this technology for public good, private good, common good. Very, very good. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming along. La- last but, I mean, uh, Janae, like, after that introduction, I feel I feel like we did you dirty not putting you first there after the, after that one. But uh, but it, Janae Ayo, who is the Director of Financial Policy at the Chamber of Progress, um, so good to have you on the show again. Can you remind our audience uh, about you and the Chamber of Progress, please? Yes, absolutely. Thank you all so much for having me back. Um, I just have a background in policy, previously worked on Capitol Hill on the House Financial Services Committee, uh, working specifically on diversity and inclusion, uh, now working on fintech and crypto issues for the Chamber of Progress. We are a tech policy organization, uh, just uh, advocating at the federal and state level to see tech creating digital opportunities for all. Very good. I think we've got the right people, Maurizio, which is great. So, Absolutely. All right, let's dive in straight away then. So I, I guess um, maybe if we start by by looking at the relationship between governments and the payment systems to date, because, I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a long road that's been going on. But Maurizio, I, I guess how much are, are governments defining the, the payments landscape? Because there's lots of different moving parts in this. So I think there's a few components, right? You have obviously the legislation part, which is kind of setting kind of ground rules to how the, who are the parties, how they interact, what are the kind of level playing field for everyone that is operating in that space to kind of compete at the same level. Also protecting consumers that might be facing any sort of uh, controversy as the services are used. In some countries, we see governments playing a bigger part by actually providing the very infrastructure that they uh, use for payments. Um, this is not at all the same everywhere. There's presence that differs from country to country. And the more we see governments understand the impact of technology, some of them are getting closer to be the one centralized provider of that technology. And some are more, okay, I understand that this is not my role to play in the context of my jurisdiction. I'll step back a little bit and I'll just make sure that everyone has the same right to play in that space. So they're very, they vary uh, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But what's the most important thing about having the government is that there is someone that says, this is how we play as an industry. This is how we operate. And these are roles and responsibilities for every party that is involved. So I, I think that's, for now, where I see most of the government participating largely in financial services, but obviously in payments with a very specific. What, and what's driving that difference geographically? I mean, obviously, different regulators regulate in different ways. Different governments have different views of control mechanisms around things. I mean, there's different uh, geos have got different rates of adoption of digital payments or you know the the eradication of physical money i mean is there a particular factors that are driving it or is it just you know 
different uh, geos are responding to the the pressures in different ways. There's all legacy stuff, right? So the history of countries are different. Some countries were colonies, some were colonizers, and they respond to different things and different speed. Some countries in Africa have given like leapfrog jumping a bunch of stuff that, you know, the, the rest of the world already had, and they went straight to mobile, for instance. This also has an impact in how the consumer responds to those uh, different uh, uh, sort of uh, provocations and stimuli. Obviously, the rate of adoption will also be different from, you know, a, a more developed country will have different problems, and then, you know, the global south will tackle technologies in a different way. So, the not only the pace of adoption, but also what uh, the people choose to use is also different. Quick example, in South America, in Latin America specifically, there are countries where there's a big presence of crypto payments already, irrespective of the regulation, because nobody trusts the existing financial system, so they go and they find themselves a way to actually get paid and pay for services and goods that is a way that they themselves trust. So again, different problems, different solutions, different rate of adoption. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting the the carrot versus the stick for adoption of those things. Sometimes the fluctuations in your local cu currency uh, sometimes can make crypto look stable. So absolutely, <laughs> yes. Uh, Chris, maybe coming to you on on that as well. I mean, w there's lots of different events. We just sort of talked a little bit about there, but this is a this is not just a, a an immediate thing. There's been events that have shaped the payments industry for for a long time. I mean, what sort of stands out for you in that? If we think about what the role of government is, it has a number of key things that it should do and do them extremely well and then stop there. One of them specific to this conversation is certainly to enable its citizenry to unleash all of that talent which exists in any country. And in that so much of life involves payments, then the government has to, must have a role in adopting the latest and potentially the greatest technologies in this space. So if we go wind back to 2001 and 9-11 and how that all uh, occurred and Greenspan, who was then running the Fed, said the biggest worry was an attack on the US Fed payment uh, structure. So it shows how significant an impact you can have on a nation that showed the worst of humanity, but flip that, and if we get it right with the new technologies, human-led, we can really lead on putting into future payments, digital payments, the very best of what it is to be human, that enabling, that emancipating, that empowerment that can come through, well thought through, well executed, good UI, good UX payments. Mm. I mean, it's it, it's fascinating. And Janae, maybe coming to you off, off the back of that, I mean, you know, we Chris touched a little bit there on, uh, uh, as you say, around 2001 and, you know, everything that, that sort of ran from there. But but obviously geopolitical uh, events, you know, globally have have been shown to have such a dramatic effect on, you know, demonetization in India or, you know, loads of different events. Uh, how do you see that really placing into this? Does it does it create urgency or does it create necessity, do you think, in, in these systems? Well, I think it creates both, um, you know, just thinking about how you have uh, different things that happen in the geopolitical landscape, like 
economic sanctions, you know, if you're shut out from being able to access a global payment system, you out of necessity have to create a new payment system, you know, to sustain, you know, financial services is the backbone of every modern economy. And so when you aren't, you know, allowed to work in a space or you don't have the proper infrastructure to operate on a global scale, you you have to make do with what you can or build a totally new environment um, in order to to thrive. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, that that point you you make there about it being the backbone of, of any economy. I mean, that it literally is, you know, like actually any crisis that you see anywhere, it's when money stops moving that you're in a really big problem, right? Uh, you know, 2008 and every other financial crisis we've seen, it's the the, the movement of money stopping that causes issues in, in that way. So, so do you, do you think, and I'm going to go, I'm going to go off uh, direction slightly here in, in, in conversation, but do you think that kind of plays a, it creates a different mandate for financial services players? Because uh, I think actually the, the, the setup that we have globally right now is it is a, um, I can't remember which bank CEO it came out who said, I'm a capitalist today. And I'm like, you run a bank. Yeah, of course you're a capitalist, right? You know, so, but actually, is there more of a societal benefit that is needed through the facilitation of the movement of money? You know, payments, as you say, is a, it's almost a, a right rather than a, a piece of functionality embedded in a mobile app. Absolutely. I think that, you know, you have to, you know, be able to prevent money from, you know, stopping moving, like you mentioned before. And I think the the closest um, in history instance that we saw of this was with COVID-19, you know, where people started moving away from cash and started embracing, you know, digital payments adoption. I mean, that it was rapid and widespread and it was, you know, it, it was necessary. Uh, just thinking about, you know, all of the ways that digital payments were impacted in our economy in the U.S., you know, global traffic and all retail e-commerce increased by about 35 percent between January and June of 2020 during the first shutdown. So once everything, once everyone started becoming comfortable with, you know, purchasing things online, you know, that's when contactless payments started to become the norm. Mobile banking, that's been around for a while, but, you know, more people um, in remote parts of our country started, you know, adjusting to that. And for, um, you know, for populations who didn't have access to banks, um, you know, they had uh, neobanks, which were introduced by fintechs um, to help fill that void. So, you know, more people started transitioning to a more digital, um, digital space, which, you know, obviously helps the digital payments landscape. Um, but I think that that's really important when you're thinking about how you have to, to move from, you know, having cash to digital payments. Yeah. I guess the other side of uh, necessity and needing to do something, I guess, is the the urgency from a regulatory perspective. And, and Maurizio, I mean, obviously, you know, bank, banking here in the UK, but PSD2 more broadly from a, a European perspective. I mean, there's there's lots of regulation that has shaped the, the payments landscape both here and, and much further seas as well. Yeah. I mean, again, financial services heavily regulated industry. It's, it's, it's really naive for us to expect that uh, it, it will have a regulated movement from the bottom up, right? Everyone wants clarity to operate, a level playing field. And that is potentially why we're not seeing more adoption of large-scale crypto solutions, mm -hmm. because there's still lack of clarity in that space on the regulatory side. So yeah, I think there is a need for us to be very clear, because again, the same way it uh, we have the right to transact, kind of alluding to what you just said. We also need to be very uh, aware that if 
everyone can transact, then we're probably going to be fostering irregular activities on the other end of the spectrum. So we need to be very aware that, yes, it's a right, but also it has its duty. So if we give way to fraud in in a larger scale, then we're not actually uh, honoring that right to transact because then we're hurting other sides of society we should be helping to prevent. So there is a balance there that clear regulation definitely helps kind of deliver. Yeah. I guess on that on that point, I mean, can, you know, money laundering or fraud get any worse given, you know, the scale of it? You know, we've seen statistics come out from regulators globally and it's uh, it's not it's not getting much better, is it, in that sense? So, you know, but with a completely un uh, identifiable source, it becomes almost an unstoppable thing, doesn't it? You know, True. But again, clear rules, right? Identification. You know this. I'm not a complete crypto degen, so take that with a grain of salt. But absolutely, we need kind of more clarity. And what is interesting that the, the clearer we get that uh, regulation, the better we can benefit and the faster we can benefit from a immutable, decentralized technology where we can actually trace money in ways that traditional payment rails would not allow us to do. And that has a better chance of helping us figure out what's going wrong in payments than we currently have today, right? So I think the traceability aspect of blockchain-based payments or crypto payment rails is something that we're not leveraging to the extent we could be. But again, it depends on more clarity to what does that mean for companies, banks, fintechs, and payment companies. Yeah, um, and maybe sort of jumping then to that, because I, I think that that sort of takes us into to sort of like the next area of, of discussion to a certain degree. I mean, what are those big opportunities on the, the sort of near horizon? Because when you start looking at actually the, that overlap, and as you say, you know, I don't expect, Maurizio, every answer you say is like, but if Bitcoin was here, like it would solve all these problems, but or any, you know, any form of... Uh, a setup from a crypto perspective, but but obviously the the overlap between you know uh, why Bitcoin was originally put out there and everything that you know DeFi and and crypto more broadly stands for, and a heavily regulated you know we said about this at the top of the to the gate, but actually you know bureaucratic you know is this about mainstream adoption when it comes to to the regulation side of things? Is it about having the scale of impact? I was saying to somebody earlier, and I, I watched a really great um, interview that Dave Grohl did. This is going to be a tangent here, so brace yourself, everybody. But he really struggled with the point where Nirvana became pop music, not punk. It wasn't that little thing that he had as a secret and it became like little girl, nine-year-old girls had a Nirvana t-shirt on, you know, like <laughs> when it was mainstream, is it the same thing? But is this the moment when it comes to everything from a blockchain perspective that they need government perspectives to help it get to really having the impact that the potential has? So what I hear you say is, is the ethos and the original mission of crypto of disintermediating financial services completely something that will be subverted if we get that into the mainstream. So if that's, you know, the question, then to some extent, yes. But remember that those were cypherpunks trying to really upstage the existing financial system. This is an industry that has hundreds of years. This is not going to go away, right? So let's not be naive to the point of, yeah, we're just going to replace everything and, and, and off we go. I don't think, and remember, we need to be accessible to everyone. And that's also a crypto ethos. Are we going to be accessible to everyone if only the gens or maxis can understand what these things mean? 
probably not. So there, there has to be a sweet spot, a happy medium between being full on maxi degen and completely against the infrastructure. Because to, to some extent, we're talking about a decentralized, much more resilient, censorship-resistant infrastructure that could serve well other purposes that are known and balanced. So yeah. as much as I would love to say, well, yeah, absolutely, you're right, let's just flip it. But I don't think that's the case because I want this, personally want this to be accessible and transformative to many, many people. And if we kind of constrain that, we won't. Yeah. I like the way that you went from uh, actual punks to cyberpunks there. That was that was a nice uh, <laughs> nice transition. That was that was great. We didn't uh, rehearse this. <laughs> Chris, uh, maybe coming to you on that one then. I mean, you you guys have been an, and and you specifically have been a big, really big advocate of the electronic trade documents bill. Uh, how much of an opportunity do you see this as? Cuz uh, it feels like quite a, a, a sort of big step for us to take and quite an important one as well. There are great opportunities and just to take us back to what you were saying around money laundering and what can be done there, the reality is we can either get serious about KYC, AML, know your customer, anti-money laundering, or we collectively choose not to. I believe we should get very serious about it, and that means getting serious about digital ID, which in so many ways is an enabler for everything that we're talking about this afternoon and in totality all of the potential of the new technologies we have to resolve this digital id question for everybody's benefit and as Mauricio said it's whether it's crypto whether it's DeFi, whatever it is it's either inclusive or to my mind it's nothing really in terms of what we're shooting at here this has to be the new way that we do nothing short of restructuring the entire notion of society, of economy, of the interaction between citizen and state, if we get it right, for the benefit, for the betterment of both. So the Electronic Trade Documents Bill is a really good example of what we can do in this space if we so choose. A really simple succinct, short bill, what it does is enable trade documents to be held in electronic form. Now, people might go, come on, that's been possible for decades. Well, it hasn't because they're different to smart contracts, for example, because they're possessive in nature, i.e. you hold the paper, you hold the goods. So how do you enable tangibility in the, at first blush, intangible world of electronic documents. Well, blockchain, distributed ledgers, offer us that opportunity for immutability, potentially for interoperability, necessarily interoperability, but crucially, so somebody is able to say, I hold this electronic document, the prior holder of it doesn't and has no claim to it, and I can prove that by reference to the ledger on the underpinning technology. The bill is smart in that it doesn't specify the technology, it's technology neutral. Obviously, currently, it's blockchain distributed ledger technology which enables this, but there will be numerous technologies which will come through, so the bill is rightly neutral on that technology. But imagine through that one simple step, trade currently which takes on average for the exchange of that 
physical document, the bill of lading, for example, bill of exchange, seven to 10 days collapsed into seconds. So efficiency, economic growth, environmental benefit because somebody no longer has to board a plane at Heathrow to fly to Singapore to connect that physical document with the goods coming to the port of Singapore to enable them to move along the way. So environmental, economic, social benefits, that's just but one small, specific, but important example of what we can do across the whole of our economy, across the whole of, if we get it right, a positively connected planet. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, as you say, that is a, uh, an amazing simplification to documentation that's existed for a very long time, like you say, the bill of lightning. But I mean, Janae, like, uh, you know, Chris made that sound super, super easy to, to kind of follow. But I mean, most policymakers are, are kind of not as technologically advanced as, uh, as that to kind of understand it. So how hard is it to approach people to kind of have that conversation? Like, do they do they really see this is the problem, or uh, or can you get them to accept that this is the solution in that way? You know, that's a really good question. Um, you have, you know, I feel like there are three camps uh, during outreach at the federal level where you have, you know, one side of policymakers who are adamantly against crypto. They see it as, you know, a solution in search of a problem. Um, on the other side, you have, you know, people who are very supportive of crypto, you know, who want to use this technology now that want to integrate it in, into our current financial systems. And then you have a, a peop, you know, a group that's kind of in the middle of the road where they're unsure, they don't really have a position on crypto, but they're interested and they're curious in learning more about this technology. And you know, fortunately, there are a lot of members who are still in that camp where they want to learn. And it's, you know, that that means it's it's a positive outlook, you know, for the crypto industry, when it comes to educating policymakers, educating staff on, you know, the things that crypto is doing well in this space and, and opportunities for crypto to grow. Uh, just thinking about uh, recently, the White House uh, issued a request for information for, you know, understanding some of the challenges that crypto, the crypto industry has and how they can leverage their research and development grants issued through the National Science Foundation to help close that gap. You know, so some of the things that we are, you know, mentioning before, like interoperability, you know, the government can fund, um, you know, money, they, they can give money to universities to do more research on how to, you know, reduce hacks, reduce scams on the blockchain. And so looking at how the government, at least, uh, you know, in the executive branch is engaging to mitigate that risk is uh, really, really forward thinking for the United States. Um, but I think, you know, the conversations you have to continue with convincing uh, people to embrace crypto. But I think that also comes with uh, shifting towards actually utility of the crypto tokens and not just speculative. You know, when you're starting to think about, you know, all of the things that crypto can do, um, there are so many, right? But we need to start moving towards what crypto is doing right now um, and and encouraging people to use it more, use the technology more. And is that, um, do you think that there's a sort of a focus there on, I mean, we, we've seen sort of similar debates around, uh, you know, open banking in the UK or, you know, does everybody need to understand it to use it? Like, I don't think they do. Like, so actually, is it about focusing on the, 
the thing it does for people, the real benefit that it drives forward, the you know the big gap that we're plugging in money laundering or the reducing fraud in organizations or the, as Chris says, the, the speed of, of change there. Is it, do we need to focus more on the end use case than necessarily the technology itself? That's a really good question. I think we should focus, you know, really on the, the end, right? Because I, I foresee, I, if I had a crystal ball in front of me, I foresee, you know, all banks and financial other financial institutions using blockchain technology to move payments, you know, from bank to bank, from, you know, bank to consumer in the future. You know, I, I don't think the average person will know that it might be crypto-based, but I, I think, you know, Right now, because there is such, uh, there are vocal concerns about, you know, blockchain, about cryptocurrency, you're going to have a lot more people questioning that technology. Um, but I mean, it's an uphill battle as well. You know, when you're currently in, in this, um, deciphering of, you know, how do we move from, you know, speculative to, utility, you know, you have people that are going to say all types of things about, you know, the bankruptcies from companies last year to illicit finance to scam activity. And, I, you know, I remember reading a report uh, from Chainalysis that said that scam revenue with cryptocurrency fell by about 46%, you know, between 2021 and 2022. So, you know, those statistics are showing that the that blockchain and digital asset industry is weeding out some of the bad actors. But for people who are so anti-crypto, um, they might not see that. And that, you know, in turn can be a challenge when you're trying to, you know, transition and, and move uh, financial institutions towards the point that everybody can use crypto. Yeah, uh, understanding and adoption. There's a, a similar curve, isn't there? But it's a, it's a difficult one to get to. But uh, all right, we're going to take a, a really quick break and we'll be all right with you in two seconds. Hello and welcome. LFG people. To Fintech Insider. Blockchain Insider. 11FS Spotlight. 11FS Explores. Open mic night. After dark. Through our podcasts, videos, newsletters, and live events, we have a direct line to a truly global fintech community. So if you're looking to sponsor and collaborate on content that connects with everybody from fintech beginners to the biggest VCs, then chat to our team at sponsors at 11fs.com or visit 11fs.com to find out more. Long live the community. Okay, folks, so we've talked about, I guess, the present day. We've talked about the possibilities of blockchain. Uh, maybe if we do a bit of future gazing now, if we go back to Janae's crystal ball and uh, and have a little bit of a, a look forward of what the, the future might hold, I mean, particularly for the, the relationships between government and payments technologies, because there is a an increasing intersection as we've been sort of talking about. So what do we see the, the biggest challenges in the, the payments uh, space that that governments really could have the the capacity to to help shift. Maurizio, do you want to maybe kick us off? Yeah, I think I, I'll go back with the right to transact. I think that is uh, that is one thing that kind of could be like a north star for if you're uh, working to transform how you build a new, more modern, more uh, near real time payment infrastructure, or you're trying to regulate that into existence. That should be one. And the second one, and maybe I'll just uh, kind of uh, uh, plagiarize a little bit of, of Janae's point there is the whole concept of the fraud monitoring, right? The, the fact that we, and, and potentially some regulators and legislators look into um, the current state of financial services and say, yeah, we solved fraud. We, we have Know Your Customer. We have AML practices. Really? 
Like we still keep finding banks and payment companies and, and people are still getting scammed in the existing ways of payments. And we have a set of technologies that can help us track some of those things in ways that we were never able to. Well, I think there's a little bit of kind of a goodwill to kind of understand the implications of these newer technologies and what they bring to the table. Chain analysis that that Janae uh, mentioned, there's other companies like Elliptic and, and, and whatnot that are actually doing on-chain data queries to understand what's the behavior of users in those blockchains. This is a very powerful tool for regulators. Hmm. for agencies. So I guess maybe coming to you, Chris, on that one, how do you see the the, the things that the, the governments could do to, to help this shift? Because as you say, it's, it is a, it's quite a big leap that we need to make, isn't it? It's a big leap, but I think we should feel rationally positive that we can do this if we so choose. Look at what we've achieved through regulation. Look at what we've achieved, say, for example, in open banking, with a CMA order, enabling a thriving industry. Still a long way to go to make it uh, universal. Still a long way to go for it to become true open finance, but really demonstrating what we can do through regulation if we so choose. But what we need to be clear about, two things worth mentioning. Firstly, the government as payment maker and the government as payment taker, we desperately need to drive fintech solutions into both of those areas. We could truly revolutionise what it is to be a taxpayer, no longer that brown envelope dropping on people's doormat, but potentially a real-time, day-by-day interaction with how you pay your taxes. Similarly, with the work and pensions departments, how payments are made to benefit recipients, so much potential to do it in a real time, empowering and crucially billions of pounds saving way. That's not public money. That's all of our money that can go to hospitals, teachers, to all of the things that the government should be doing. Third, we need to look at how we ensure that digital payments are inclusive by design, accessible to all. That's why in the current Financial Services and Markets Bill that's going through Parliament, I put down an amendment exactly to that effect that the government should commission a review into digital financial services, not least payments, the platforms, the apps, the skills, the connectivity, everything that one would enable to be able to say, not only do we have the best platforms, apps, and ecosystem for digital payments, but they are inclusive by design, inclusive for all, and thus thoroughly enabling and something which we should all feel connected to and proud of. It's um it's interesting and and on that point I mean we often say eleven fs the the difference between digitizing and digital is is really significant and actually how much do you think to that point as you say about the the review and everything that comes for financial services is is getting people to really understand how big the ambition could be you know financial services could be so much more impactful for for normal people you know every second every day of their lives so is this about do you think getting people to really have a 
you know, everybody's aspiration getting a little bit bigger about what we could achieve if we did it right. It's really about doing far more in terms of public engagement, connecting everybody to the possibilities, to the opportunities, and yes, understanding the risks, the threats, the whole shebang, technical word there, we'll, we'll put that in the glossary at the end of the show, <laughs> the whole shebang of what we're talking about here. So people could not only have the level of understanding required, and that's not to need to understand the plumbing, the rails, the architecture. What we need to understand as consumers, as citizens, is is this safe? Will it keep my details private and secure? Does it work in the ways that we have all collectively determined it should work? Reliability, all of those things is what we all need to know. But that level of public engagement is the only way to enable people to have the comfort and from that, the confidence to transact in this digital space. Completely agree. Uh, Janae, I, I guess coming to you with this, this, this same question, we're, we're seeing, uh, and actually, you know, not just in the UK, but in the US and around the world, we're seeing governments play a, a much bigger role in making sure that there is a, a, a more of a desire to, to move these things forward. And actually, the creating competition in all of these uh, different economies as well. I mean, what do you really see the, that the government can do to, to accelerate or to, to, to nurture this change? You know, I, I really think that the government should serve as an incubator of sorts. Uh, like Chris mentioned, you know, we do need to, you know, do more when it comes to digital literacy and empowering consumers with the knowledge that they need in order to use uh, these technologies. And I think the government should have a big role in that. Um, you know, the government currently is serving as an incubator for market participants uh, to come in and, and show what their products are doing. Um, they come in and, and um, collaborate with the government on, you know, mitigating risk and harm. Um, also, you know, promoting some of the, the benefits of this technology by integrating it with already existing um, mechanisms in the United States. Uh, just thinking about the New York Fed, uh, their pilot program with CBDCs and you know, uh, what FedNow is doing, which is essentially building a real-time payments uh, platform for the Federal Reserve. Uh, so, you know, the government does have a big role to play here. And it's, it's you know, making sure that consumers are protected, making sure that consumers are educated, and making sure that market participants are, are innovating to the American standard. I, I guess one thing we touched on a little bit earlier on, Maurizio, is, and you sort of said about the uh, you know, emerging markets. And, you know, often when people talk about legacy, you know, it's like, you know, uh, in, a, in a good way, but, you know, legacy debt, legacy technology debt, or, I mean, even just from a cultural perspective, like the way it gets done around here is this. Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, you know, m a bunch of emerging markets, we've seen people leapfrog in an amazing way uh, because of a lack of that uh, existing, you know, inertia in that way. Uh, I mean, do you think that's a potential opportunity to see much more innovative things happening in emerging markets and and almost the the reverse of what we've seen when it comes to, you know, obviously regulation from the UK when it came to uh, challenger banks spreading out to the rest of the world. Are we going to see actually the emerging markets leading the way in this space and therefore infecting the rest of the world in that way? There is a chance, obviously, right? I mean, the example I gave before about, you know, countries in South America actually jumping into crypto as a means of payment because the, the, everything else doesn't work is is also something that, you know, the need will guide that. We, we do a lot of jobs to be done here at 11FS for our clients. You know, the people will find a way to solve the problems that they have with the technology that is accessible. 
in, in that context, the technology is permissionless. If you have an internet and you have a computer, you can access that. Is this the most ideal way to actually jump into a technology that's completely unregulated? Probably not, but again, the need will drive that. So the more we see the needs being satisfied by this new technology, the faster that's going to be adopted. So yes, because there is a lack, maybe a lack of infrastructure, but if you have internet and a computer, you're already in the next wave of the web, that is really powerful. Yeah. Well, I'm just about getting that in Norfolk, I have to say, like uh, the, in, the internet bit, not so much, but uh, but I'm working on it. Uh, uh, Chris, I, I guess uh, coming to you on, on that side of things as well, and, and not wanting to bring the tone down here in terms of uh, making it a bit more depressing but obviously from an economic perspective you know not just in the UK but the whole world's in a in a bit of a downturn at the moment and and obviously you know whether it comes to more broad uh, supply chain issues or uh, or generally just the the impact that that has to everybody on the walking around on the street uh, then actually you know, payment solutions have a place to play in this. You know, obviously, we talked a little bit about the the pandemic and the way in which that that helped. But I mean, how do you see those solutions offering something to to everybody and and actually organisations just trying to to sort of deal with these times? For sure, and we all have a leadership role to play here because, understandably, we're in tricky geopolitical times: war, climate energy crisis but the reality is there is still so much potential if we look at potential use cases for everything across the new technologies and the digital finance landscape dematerialization of markets which could benefit everybody taking costs completely out of cross-border payments could save the planet 15 trillion that's a number worth thinking on looking at disintermediation of payments, looking at peer-to-peer, looking for SMEs, for example, small and medium-sized enterprises who have largely been, at best, ignored by traditional finance, will look what they can do potentially with the cloud and the crowd. There's so much, not in any sense, being rose-tinted glass about it at all, being rationally positive, rationally optimistic about what we can do. But it's for governments, it's for corporates, it's for startups, scale-ups, all to lead on this and crucially again to connect the public into the possibility because if that's not done, why should anybody even lift one ear up to listen? Everybody has a right, everybody has a role to play in this And there is always that societal reciprocity of rights and responsibilities. If we can blend everything we know about economics, social theory, political theory, psychology, and so on, we can make a success even in these most difficult times. And I think we all have to work incredibly hard to do that. It's all of our responsibility. Well, I mean, we started this with a why should governments embrace new payment technologies? I think that's a that's a pretty powerful why and a, a probably a very good place to, to to leave the podcast at this point. I know we're running out of time. I know we could go for several hours on just uh, a few more of these topics and we'll have to have you all back to, uh, to do just that. But uh, that does wrap up today's discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and your companies? I mean, Maurizio, let's go with you. <laughs> My companies? You just oh. inherited it. Let's go with you. <laughs> 
Uh, on Twitter, I'm at 0xMauricio. On LinkedIn, Mauricio Magaldi. And obviously, 11fs.com. Janae, how about you? My organization is progresschamber.org. And our Twitter is at progresschamber. And my personal Twitter is at Janae EO. Very, very good. Chris, where can people learn a little bit more about all you're up to? Please, everybody do come hit me up on LinkedIn at Lord Chris Holmes. Same on Twitter. Be really keen to hear all of your thoughts, commentary and ideas in this space all across digital payments, but across the whole digital finance and new technology space. We have the opportunity. We have to make that opportunity a reality. Fantastic. I feel like there's a lot of DMs that are going to be flying your way on that one for sure. But uh, uh, as for me, you can always find me lurking on LinkedIn mostly these days. Thank you so much for listening. If you do like what you heard, follow the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show as well. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. I think pretty much everyone at this stage, but search for 11FS, search for Fintech Insider, search for Blockchain Insider. And if you really want to, email us on podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.